starting a brand new quarter. Today we're going to be reading from the book of Isaiah. Before we read our our actual lesson text from chapter 5, I want us to look at, um, just briefly, at the preceding four chapters, because it gives us kind of a background of of what Isaiah was writing about about in in chapter 5. The book of Isaiah was written by one of the many prophets that God had sent to the Hebrew people. His name was, of course, Isaiah. The name Isaiah means God saves. Chapter 1 and verse 1 tells us that the events that Isaiah recorded in this book came to him in the form of a vision. Let's read the first part. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. In this particular vision, he's speaking to the people of Judah. And a lot of times we talk about Judah and we talk about Israel. What and where and and exactly who were the people of Judah? After the death of King Solomon... The tribes of Israel who were at one time united as one people were split into two kingdoms. The southern portion of the what was known <clears throat> as the country of Israel became Judah and the capital remained at Jerusalem. And the northern part of the, the area became Israel with the capital at Samaria. The theme of the first chapter of the book of Isaiah is God reminding the people of the rebellious attitude, and he recounts the events that have taken place throughout the history of these people. And we have talked a lot about the history of of the Israelites from the time that they left Egypt and how they had served God and they had rebelled against God and they had gone back to serving God, and it was this back-and-forth relationship between God and them. In verse 3, God says that... Even a farmer's animals are more intelligent than the people of Judah because at least a donkey knows where his food comes from and the ox knows who he belongs to. He said the ox knows his master, the donkey knows his owner's manger, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. In verses 4 through 6, God tells the people that they have in the past and in the future they will suffer punishment because they refuse to change from their evil behavior. And he goes on in in the following verses to tell them that their enemies have destroyed their land, that foreign people have come in, the foreign enemies have come in and they've ruined your country, they've they've burned your towns, they've sieved your fields and stripped what was good in the fields from them. And all you can do is just sit and watch as it happens. He says Jerusalem has no defense. It looks like an empty hut out in in a field of melons. And in verse 9, he says, your enemies are all around you. And, and he's trying to make a point here that this is a people that God has blessed. These are his chosen people, the ones that he took care of out of Egypt, brought them from Egypt all the way into this land that he had promised. He had blessed them with everything, and now they have become something that they were never intended to be. He says, your enemies are all around you. But he he goes on to say in verse 9 that he has kept alive a certain group of these people, 
Otherwise, the city's fate would have been much like Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you remember, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were completely destroyed because they were so evil that God just came down and destroyed the entire cities. And then in the next few verses, God proclaims that Israel's religion is not sincere. He talks about the fact that they offered sacrifices, that they did all of the things that looked good on the outside, but he said it was meaningless. All of those things were just, they were just ceremonial. They held festivals. They had regular meetings in the temple. And finally he says, just stop it. Just, just stop. I'm sick of it. I'm tired of it. Why? Because he was saying, what is in your heart? You're going through the motions. You're, you're doing all of the things that look good on the outside, but there's nothing on the inside. And we look at that and we compare it to the church today. And we see that so many Christians come to church. They look the part. They sing. They know all the words to the songs. They know how to raise their hands, whether it's this way or this way or this way or this way. And they know exactly how to do it. They know where to say amen. And yet, what is inside? And I think in too many cases that we have become professional Christians. I've always heard that the definition of a professional was someone that made something look easy. That can do a difficult task and make it look easy. And there's, I believe that there's people that can come to church and they've done it for so long. They've done it the same way for so long. They've gone through the motions for so long that regardless what's inside, they just make it look easy. They know how to stand. They know how to raise their hands. They know the words to all the songs. They know they could sing whatever part you want, soprano, tenor, alto, or whatever you want them to sing. They're professionals. But what's inside? And this is what God was saying. If you look in verses, I think it's like 12 through 16, God is talking to them about the different things that you do. But what does it mean? Instead, here's what God told them they should be doing in verses 16 and 17. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Do the things that are just basic right and wrong. Forget all this stuff that just makes you look like you're holy. Do the things that actually show that you are. And again, if we look at that and compare it to the church today and Christianity in a lot of cases today, there are so many people out there that, again, they know how to do all of the things that go along with what people think Christianity is. But when it comes down to doing what's right, Seek justice, encourage the oppressed, reaching out to people that need help. Are we doing that? These, a lot of these things are just the basic tenets of Christianity.
in these verses, he's telling them that, that people who continue to live evil lives cannot expect their sacrifices in the temple to save them from God's punishment. Just because you go to the temple and just because you take a sacrifice and just because you, you know all of the things of the law doesn't mean that it's going to save you from punishment. And I would tell us today that as, as Christians, as believers, just because we can go through the motions and we can walk out the door and feel like, well, I went to church today, I feel real good about that. It doesn't mean that God is pleased. But that wasn't the end. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, offers a, it offers a glimpse of what could be and what ultimately would be in Judah's future. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Ju Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains, it will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways so that we may walk in His paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So that sounds good. And in, he has just gone through all of these things that, that they've done so wrong, and yet he offers this glimpse of what could be if they did what was right. But then in the following two chapters, he returns to this, this scathing rebuke, and we're back to current day, and he talks about how they have, they have turned to idolatry. And he gives even more detail of the subsequent punishment that was to come. But that was still not the end. So we have chapter 1 where he talks about how they've fallen away and they've done this, this living for God that looked good but was nothing really on the inside. Then he talks about how it could be and someday it will be this, returns back to details of what their punishment will be, but that's not the end of the story. Then he offers a solution to the problem. And today I believe we face a similar fate. The Bible says that all of us were born into sin. But God has provided us a solution to that. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's only when we repent of that sin, we leave that old life behind, we are baptized and we receive His Spirit into our life, that we are free from the impending punishment that every man faces. It was no different for them then. God provided a way out. All they had to do was follow the path that God had set before them for, to not receive all the punishment. Today we are the same way. We are all headed. When we are born, we are headed. The Bible says that we are born in sin. Because of Adam's original sin, none of us are born saved. But there is a path that leads to salvation. And it is offered to each and every one of us. It is up to us to choose whether we go down the path that God has given us to salvation or we head down the path of destruction. In Isaiah chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, 
Isaiah tells them of God's eventual purification and prosperity of his people. Let's read that. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy. All who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over all the glory will be a canopy. So even though God is telling them that they're headed for this serious, disastrous future, He also tells them that there is an escape. And then in chapter 5, where we're going to read from today, Isaiah goes back to what he had begun in chapter 2 about talking about what could be and what would be the glorious future that he had started talking about in chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now, let me just say this. If you are not at all interested in the, some of the literary aspects of biblical writing, then for the next 60 seconds, please just look at me and pretend to be interested. And during that time, maybe just ask yourself, why did he choose to wear that shirt today? And for everyone else, then we will go back to some of the literary things. We're going to talk about allegory. For just Give me just a few seconds here. Allegory is a form of extended metaphor. Stay with me. In which objects, persons, and actions in a narrative are equated with meanings that lie outside of the narrative itself. Now, what does that mean? In other words, allegory is a story with two meanings. A literal meaning and a symbolic meaning. What we're looking at today, the passages that we're reading in Isaiah, are written in allegory. They are written where there is a, a literal meaning. You could take this as a person that really went out and took a vineyard and they did all of these things because it makes sense to somebody that's familiar with that. But it also has a secondary meaning. So as I was studying, I kept, I would go on, and then I'd stop and I'd start thinking about, well, what is the difference in that parable? And I thought, well, that's really not important. But I just couldn't get this out of my head, so I had to go back and see what the difference between an allegory and a parable is. So I went back, and the difference in a parable and an allegory basically depends on the number of comparisons made in the story. A parable may contain more than one image and implication, but it only has one point, one main point, and one moral truth. So you tell this story to get across a single moral truth. Whereas, on the other hand, an allegory makes many comparisons 
through a kind of coded message. If you read the passage we've just read, if you look at it, all through the, the, the story that's being told, everything symbolizes something else. It's not headed to just one moral message. Everything relates to something else. Each detail is a separate metaphor. And if you're an insider and you understand these things, then you understand both the obvious and the second or intended message. So in verses 1 through 7, Isaiah uses an allegory in which God's people are compared to a vineyard that the Lord had cultivated, but it had not produced any fruit. And since the people of that day were very familiar with vineyards, they understood both the obvious and the second message and the meanings of Isaiah's writings. And these verses also are part of the case against Judah. The leaders of the nation had allowed themselves to be seduced by the, the folly of, of human independence. The people had followed the leaders. And the nation of Judah had placed her faith in human powers instead of God. They had gotten to a point where they looked around and said, look what we can do. We were able to do this all by ourselves. And because of that, the nation was headed to a path of destruction. And we're going to relate this to our day here in just a minute. Hopefully we can see the comparison. The prophet Isaiah's song that we've just read and, and we're going to continue to read was about what he called in verse 1, the one I love, and what he's, who he's talking to is the Lord. Isaiah himself in this, this passage takes the role of, of what we would relate to as a best man in a wedding, and he composes this, this love ballad for his friend, who is God, on the occasion of his wedding to the bride, which is God's people. And the prophet notes, and this is the story in chapter 5, that his friend had a plot of land that was located on this rich and fertile hill. It was a great place to plant a vineyard. And then in verse 2 says that the owner of this land did everything that he could do to make this land the very best vineyard that there possibly could be. And as it was typical in ancient times, the owner, Isaiah says the owner plowed the land, he removed all the stones, and then he planted it with the best vines that money could buy. In other words, this person said, I see so much potential here that I will, I will do the very best that I have to make this the very best so it will yield the very best fruit. It says in the middle of the property, he built a watchtower to protect it, the vines and their fruit. And then carved a wine press in nearby rocks. And the way that they did this, they would literally carve out of rock this huge pit. And then the workers would gather together the grapes and they would put them in an upper chamber and they would climb in and they would stomp them with their feet. And then the juice would run down through a tube down into a lower chamber and there it would begin to ferment. So the idea was, I've got this beautiful hill with this fertile land and everything in the world going for it. I put the very best vines on it. And then when we get these grapes that should be the best in the world, we'll put them in here and we'll have the very best wine that possibly could be. And so goes the plan. 
Everything was in place, and everything was set up to produce the very best fruit, the best land, the best vines, the best of everything. And we see God here as this this bridegroom is entirely gracious in lavishing Judah with his love. He is saying, I have given you everything to be prosperous. I have given you everything to be the very best. But then he comes to this point, and even though he expected this abundant harvest of sweet grapes, Isaiah 5 and 2 tells us the vines produced only bad fruit in spite of everything that he had done. The original Hebrew of this text leaves us with the impression that the grapes were so bad and they were so rotten that the only thing they were fit for was to take them out and dump them. They were useless. And at this point, the what was intended to be a love song turns the other way and it turns sour. As God breaks in and censors His people for their barrenness and lack of bearing good fruit. In the final line of, of line 3, this allegory becomes a, it becomes a judgment speech in which the Lord calls for the people of Judah to consider all the evidence. Look at everything that you see. Consider all of the evidence and determine who was guilty, God or the people. Judge between me and the vineyard. He asks them, what more could I have done for the vineyard beyond what I've already done? He had given the best of everything and they chose not to make anything of it or even to follow the plan to completion. Generally, when there is a a failure in a human relationship, we usually expect both parties to bear part of the responsibility. Pretty much in any relationship, whether it's a a husband and wife or they break up and they have problems, generally you can't place the blame all on one person. But when it comes to failed relationships between God and His people, the blame falls entirely on His people because God does everything that He can. And God is perfect and God is loving and God is just. So He provides everything if we choose not to accept it It's not his fault. And that's what he was saying in that verse. Look at all the evidence here and decide who did everything they could and who didn't. So in spite of God's love and care, the people of Judah forsook him. And because of that, it's no wonder that judgment rather than blessing awaited this nation. And if we're not careful, we find ourselves here today and we read these things and we shake our heads and we say, oh, those people of Judah, how could they time and time again take the, the things that God had blessed them with, all of the blessings of God that God had poured out on them and had given them the best of everything, 
How could they time and time again turn away from Him? And yet we see it in our own day. We live in the greatest nation that has ever existed. We live in a place where we have freedom. Freedom to worship God. And God has blessed us. But we have seen a nation that was founded on godly principles turn away from many of those principles and embrace a philosophy of humanism. The idea of I will do what I want when I want and I shouldn't have to face any consequences. Sound familiar? It's exactly what happened with Judah. It's exactly what happened to, to God's chosen people time and time again. They found that in their life when they served God and when they followed after Him and they followed after the direction that He placed them in, they were blessed. And then they would get comfortable and they would start looking around at all the other people and all the other things that were available and they'd say, I think I like that better. And when they went out and started looking towards those things and they started bringing those things into their lives, they found the punishment of God came along with it. And we as a nation, the United States of America, the greatest nation that has ever existed on this earth, if we are not careful, we will find ourselves in the exact same place that we have been given so many examples in this Word and we've seen it played out time and time again and yet we continue to head in that direction. And we find ourselves right now in the middle of a, an election year. And I'm not going to endorse anybody or say don't vote for somebody because that's between you and God. But I will tell you this, that none of the candidates that are running are the Messiah regardless of what some people might tell you. But there are some obvious choices that we have to make. I will ask you this, and, and I'll just stay with me just for a moment. Does the person that you plan to vote for even stand for basic, fundamental, moral, right, and wrong standards? If not, go back and read the book of Isaiah and read specifically the chapters we just read because if we can't even stand for the basic, moral, right, and wrong things... We are headed for destruction. When we become a nation of people that find it morally acceptable to kill unborn babies, and in some cases babies that have been born, what have we become? And people say, well, I would never do that. I would never do that. But can you go in that little booth and pull that lever for someone that says it's okay? We have been blessed by God as a nation, just as the people of Judah were. And their song we sing, it says, America, America, God shed His grace on thee. And that is so true. God has blessed us as a nation. But if as a nation we continue as we are, where are we headed and what will the outcome be? Isaiah goes on in chapter 5 to not only explain it, but to give us an answer to that question. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. Now I will tell you what I'm going to do with my vineyard. 
I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated in briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Isaiah referred to God's people as the garden of his delight in verse 7. It was a, a powerful way of describing the Lord's intimate, tender care of his people. You are special. You are the garden of my delight. But in spite of that, in this passage, God has announced what he would do to his vineyard. Remember, this is not just some horrible little vineyard that just happened to pop up. This was a special place. This was a vineyard that was built on this rich and fertile hillside that was plowed up and all of the stones removed and the very best vines were placed there. And in spite of that, he says, I'll tear down the hedge. I'll tear down the wall that protects it. And it would just be open to anybody that wants to come in and take whatever they want. As a result, whoever wants to can come and go freely. And the fruit will be trampled and the vines will be trampled. And even though God had invested considerable attention in caring for the vineyard, now he even refused to prune the vines or even hoe the ground. Instead, he said the, the property would become overgrown with briars and thorns, and he would curse the land by even pre preventing the rain to fall on it. You say, well, all of this sounds so symbolic. Well, it is. But if we look back at history, we see that all of the symbolism of this story happened to the people of Judah. Eventually, Everything that they had was destroyed. They were taken captive and carried off into a land. Their enemies turned them into slaves. God's chosen people. Where are we headed? Where are we headed as a nation? Where are we headed as a church? Where are we headed as a people? God has blessed us. He has given us the best of everything. What have we chosen to do with it? Matthew chapter 7, verses 18 through 20 says, A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Again, we see symbolism used here comparing a tree that bears fruit to us. And here in Florida, we're very familiar with, with orange trees. And as we drive through 
Not as much so now as used to be. You drive down the highway, you used to see orange groves everywhere. But you can drive through an orange grove when it's, it's the season when they should be out picking fruit. And so many of the groves you see, well, there's nobody out there picking. Why? There's no fruit. And you walk through a, an orange grove, and immediately you can tell which trees are orange trees and which trees are grapefruit trees, even though the trees themselves look very much the same. How is that? Simply because of the fruit that's on it. And Matthew was writing not about orange trees, but of the trees that were in his day, but it still applies to us today. When the world looks at us, what do they see? Do they see just another tree? Do they see just another person? Do they see just another church when they look at High Point Church? Or do they see something that bears fruit that they don't see everywhere else? What have we done with the blessings that God has bestowed on us? Jesus said in that passage in Matthew that the way to identify a tree or a person is by the kind of fruit that's produced. The people of Judah, the problem they had was that they failed to examine their own fruit. And because of that, they paid a heavy price. And I would ask us today, do we examine our own fruit? Do we honestly stand back and look at our lives and, and we look at our, the way that we live and, and we say, what do people see when they look at me? Although the song or the prophet Isaiah that we've read today was written in the form of allegory for the people of that day, I believe that for us today it can be interpreted in a form of a parable. Because as we've looked at before, a parable points to a single moral. And that is regardless what God has blessed us with, regardless of all the things and the goodness of God to us, if we choose to do absolutely nothing with it, it will come to naught. We have been given opportunity. We have been blessed with freedom. We've heard the Word of God taught for many of us for decades. We have all this stuff, but what are we doing with it? Are we producing fruit? And if we are producing fruit, what kind of fruit are we producing? One of my favorite things to do for people, I won't say two people, four people that visit from the north, is to take them to an orange tree that looks just like any other orange tree. But it just happens to be one that in a freeze somewhere back in the day, it froze back past the point to where they grafted in a good orange. And once it freezes back to that point, when it comes back out, it's a sour orange. And it looks just like a regular orange. 
the tree looks just like a regular orange tree. And so many times I've taken somebody from up north and you walk out to this beautiful orange tree and you pull one down off there and you peel it for them and you say, you have to try this. And they look at it and it's all dripping with juice and they go, wow, a fresh orange right off the tree. Until they put it in their mouth and they realize that it's probably one of the most sour things they've ever tasted. All fruit is not good fruit. So I would ask us today, not only are we producing fruit, but if we are producing fruit, what kind of fruit are we producing? If we stood before God today, would He look at us the same way that He looked at the people of Judah? And when I say us, I don't, I don't mean it's only us as a nation or only us as a church, but us as individuals. Now I'll close with this. We are blessed as a nation, we are blessed as a church, and we are blessed as individuals. And with all of that said, and of all the talk that we've, we've talked today about the fruit, let me throw this in and say we don't need to be going around inspecting everyone else's fruit. We can stay busy enough inspecting our own. And I would ask that since we're not going to spend our time inspecting everyone else's fruit, could we spend some time and purpose in our hearts that we will inspect our own? As David said, he wrote in one of the Psalms, he said, Search me, O Lord, and know my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me. I believe a lot of times we don't pray that prayer to God because we really don't want Him to do that. We really don't want to look down deep in our heart and see what's there. And we really don't want God to tell us what He sees. But I would ask us today, since we've looked at this and we've seen what the consequence of, of going out and planting fruit and planting what should be a potentially this tremendous harvest and seeing that it comes to naught if we're not careful, could we say as David said, Lord, search me. Search my heart. See if there's anything in me that shouldn't be there. And then God, help me to get rid of it because in the end, I want to ultimately produce good fruit. And if we come up short, let us turn to God, our provider, and ask Him to show us what we can do to change and not just have Him tell us but then follow through until we and all those around us see the fruit that is pleasing to God. God bless you.